starting a new book of the Bible, the book of Acts tonight. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Wednesday night is our through the Bible study, meaning that when we finish one book of the Bible, we go right to the next. So we finish John and we go into the book of Acts together. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you reign in our lives, that you reign over all of the circumstances, Lord, even our shortcomings, our failures, our sin. And we thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit, that you promised to empower us with the Holy Spirit so that we could be your witness. We pray for clarity, we pray for encouragement, we just pray for rich blessing the time in your word. So we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Why is the book of Acts so important in our lives? First is the book of Acts gives us an idea as a church what we should be about. It seems that churches throughout church history seem to drift from God's heart and drift from God's plan. So the book of Acts has a way of bringing us back to the purity of what the Lord intends. Also, importantly, this book shows us what it looks like to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've heard the term walk in the Spirit. You've wondered, what does that look like? What does that really mean to walk in the Spirit? It seems kind of mystical, mysterious. The book of Acts really puts it into the flesh and shows us what it looks like to be filled with and to walk in the power of God's Spirit. Could you imagine what it would be like if the book of Acts was missing in the New Testament? We'd have the life of Christ Then you'd go to the epistles and you'd go, who is the Apostle Paul? I have no reading of him in the Gospels. Now he's writing all of these letters to all of these churches. How did we get there? If you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that it ends abruptly, that there's no real conclusion to the book of Acts. We're kind of right at the end of Paul's life, but it doesn't let us know how Paul's life ends. There's a reason for that, because the acts of the Holy Spirit never cease. And some have considered the title of the book of Acts to maybe be more appropriate, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, instead of the Acts of the Apostles. We know God's words inspired, but the title has been added by the translators over the years. No doubt, nonetheless, God desires for his spirit to be active in our lives, that we're engaged with God's spirit. If you've walked with the Lord for some time or you're new in the Lord, I hope that as we study, it's not just an academic exercise, but we're really applying and learning and growing in living out a life in the Spirit. I think this is one of the things that's really missing in the church of God in our day, in our culture, is an understanding of the Spirit of God. But without God's Spirit and without God's power, there is no possible way to live the Christian life. Agreed? Because we look at the Christian life, we're to be Christ-like, we're to be godly. How in the world can we be godly without God's power? So often, so many times in my life, well-intending, I try to do God's work without God's power. Ever been there? And I wear myself out, and I get back to this place of saying, Lord, I need your power, I need your strength. Also, I think in the days that we live in, they're very dark days, but they're exciting days to be a Christian, Because the light of God shines all the brighter, but even more so how much we need the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The church can't be a business. The church can't be a machine. Our lives cannot be gears with mechanisms. It has to be oiled with the Spirit of God. As we're interacting with people in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, in our families, so many people that have no idea who Jesus Christ is. A friend of mine invited me to lunch this week. Uh, he's here tonight, a good friend. And he was kind of joking around as we sat down for lunch last week. And he, he told the people at the restaurant, now you, you got to be nice to him. He's a pastor. And, and the lady looked at me like I was from another planet. She's like, she's like what's, a, what's a pastor? So you have to forgive me, but I'm like, well, I just take care of sheep. And she looked at me. She's like, really? You take care of sheep? And then her coworkers like, yeah, he's a cattleman. He's a herdman. He takes care of sheep. But both of them had never heard the term pastor before. And it was amazing to me that this is the kind of world that we're living in. And a lot of times we think maybe America has this understanding of God, but they don't. You think about how quickly a generation, two generations happens, and there is a whole country of people that don't know the gospel, that don't know Jesus Christ, and don't know the things of God. If there was ever time for a move of the Spirit, the time is now. Agreed? Amen? So let's start in verse 1 of Acts chapter 1. The former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Luke is the human author that God used in this study. The former account is the gospel of Luke. He writes to this man, Theophilus, which means lover of God. And he writes first and he says this former account of both what Jesus began to do and to teach. I like the way that this is worded from Luke is Jesus did before he taught. The action came before the teaching. Who is this man, Theophilus? A lot of people have wondered, a lot of commentators have guessed from a friend to a Roman official. One of the best guesses, I think, may be that this is actually Luke's owner. We know from Colossians 4, verse 14, that Luke was a physician, the beloved physician, and most physicians at this time were actually slaves. If you were really wealthy, then you would have your own private physician. He may be writing back to his owner these things, but I think God leaves out the specifics of who Theophilus is for us to understand how much one person means to God. This one individual got two books of the Bible written to him personally. That's pretty cool. Whoever this was in Luke's life, he cared about him enough to give great detail of the life of Jesus Christ. Luke is the longest book of the New Testament. The chapters are extremely long, if you remember, as we went through the Gospel of Luke. That was just volume one. Now volume two is the book of Acts, another very long book in the New Testament. How much does that one person mean to you in your life? Where you say, I want them to know the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. I want them to know the power of the Holy Spirit working through a body of believers. I'm going to take the time to share with them. We see Luke's investment in this one man. Verse 2. Until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commands to the apostles whom he had chosen. This is the 40-day period after the resurrection of Christ, before the ascension of Christ, and Jesus is preparing the apostles for the work ahead of them. He's giving commands. 
as we look at the life of the disciples, they did have this three years of training where Jesus is walking alongside of them. But now in the book of Acts, the baton's gonna be passed and it is that moment of debriefing before they head off into their mission. And every soldier has to have the training. They've gotta have the boot camp. But then they also need the missions right around the corner. You're going out in two weeks. So here's the specific intel that you're going to need for this mission. This is what you're going to need to do if things go bad. This is your retreat plan. And this is the moment where Jesus is giving to the apostles these important things. And if you're taking notes tonight, it goes into three categories. These are our marching orders. And first is the proof of the son. The proof of the son. The second is the promise of the Father, and the third is the power of the Holy Spirit. If we're gonna go with the marching orders of Jesus Christ, we've gotta have the proof of the Son. We've gotta know of Jesus Christ before we can go and testify of him, specifically about his resurrection. But we're also gonna have to understand the promise of the Father, that the Father's promised the Holy Spirit to us, and then practically be experiencing it, being experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Verse three, to whom he'd also presented himself alive after his suffering by, any, by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. His resurrection after his suffering. If you've been studying with us through the gospels, we've looked in great detail at the suffering of Jesus Christ. He's risen from the dead, 40 days before he ascends to the Father, he's visiting his apostles. He's visiting his disciples. He's giving them infallible proofs. This word infallible, it means unquestionable, impossible to decay. The proof of the resurrection is something that you can stand on. A cross-reference, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us during this 40-day period, that four, 500 people, excuse me, Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. What is the greatest apologetic to our faith? Meaning, what's the great defense for our faith? It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul tells us that our faith would be futile and empty. Of all people, we could be the most pitied. But if Christ is alive, then with certainty, we can know that Jesus is God that he is who he claims to be. And this is something that we should know, that we should have down in our hearts, that we can share with others, with skeptics, with people that have honest questions about Jesus Christ. So what are the proofs to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? First, it comes down to the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection, and we have those in the Gospels. Well, we've just read through over the last several months looking at the life of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Infallible proofs by eyewitnesses. And then the testimony of these accounts, it costs them their lives. We look at the lives of the apostles and for them to proclaim that Jesus is alive, they died, they were martyred. The only one who wasn't was John, who God gave to him the book of Revelation. He was boiled in hot oil God preserved his life. He went on to write the book of Revelation. But the rest of the apostles, it cost them their life. If they were lying, don't you think one of them would have cracked? And you have to remember, prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, these guys were cowardice, weren't they? They were hiding in a room. They were afraid for their lives. They didn't want to 
be there at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the trial of Jesus Christ. They were transformed by the power of God. So we have eyewitnesses and the fact that eyewitnesses gave their lives. We also have the empty tomb, the empty tomb. There's no body that's ever been found of Jesus Christ. Now skeptics will tell us, well, they stole the body of Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus was buried, the Roman soldiers were put in place to guard the tomb. It wouldn't have been an easy task to go in and steal the body. If someone would have stole the body of Jesus Christ, when you're being tortured to the point of death, don't you think someone would have said, we made this whole thing up? We have the empty tomb of Christ. Skeptics came to Christ, Paul, and also James. As we'll continue in the book of Acts, we see Paul, who is staunchly against the things of God, but yet the resurrected Jesus Christ came and changed his heart and life. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't believe in Christ at all, but when he experienced the resurrection, he went from the skeptic to the believer and leader inside of the church of God. It's important to know these facts, understand these facts. There's also accounts of Christ's resurrection written by men that are outside sources of the scripture. Josephus being one of those, a Jewish historian, It's a well-known fact as we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's historically accurate. It's something that you can hang your hat on and even more so you can bank your soul on. One of the testimonies I think that stands greatly of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well is our changed lives. We know that Christ is alive because of what he's done in our lives, our own testimony. Don't let anybody take that from you. I was blind, but now I see. So these are our marching orders. This is what we don't want to leave home without. If we're going to go out and impact a lost and dying world that doesn't know Christ, we first have to understand the testimony of the Son. We've got to understand these infallible proofs of his resurrection. We go on into verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Up until this point, what was the message of Christ? Go, go, go. Go and make disciples. I've got a mission for you. They're walking into the unknown. Now what does Jesus tell them to do? Wait. I want you to go back to Jerusalem, which is a hot spot, where Christ has just been crucified, and I want you to wait for the promise of the Father. It would be 10 days from the ascension of Christ till the giving of the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. That's a long time to gather together and to pray. What if we shut down our lives for 10 days and just prayed? Say, God, I want your power. I want to know what the promise of the Father means practically in my life. I'm going to seek you in prayer. That would be a long time. We're well into March by that point for 10 days to to go on. A lot of times we want to do, we want to go. One of the most difficult things for us is to wait. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. This takes us back to John. This is where studying through the Bible, it begins to unfold itself. If you were with us from John 14 to 17, Jesus took a lot of time to describe the Spirit. In fact, he even said, it's to your advantage if I'm taken out, if I'm taken back to my Father, so the Spirit can come, the Helper can come. 
But if I stay with you, then the helper cannot come. So Jesus said, you're going to receive the helper. You're going to receive this promise. Now you've got to go and wait. When we receive the call of God, it'd be wise to also wait upon him for his power. Because God's callings are also God's enablements. If God calls you to something, he's also going to give you the power to be able to do it. But it's so easy for us to just march into God's calling without waiting for his power. I think there's something still to this, to waiting upon the Lord. How many times have we maybe gotten away and said, Lord, I just want your power to be the kind of husband, wife that you desire for me to be. Lord, I'm going to get away and I'm going to wait upon you. I'm going to stay in this place until I know that I've heard from you, that I've met with you, because I need to receive your power. As a church, I think those weeks of prayer and fasting, times when we just stop everything else and say, Lord, we want to seek you in prayer. We're nothing without your power. Even for us tonight to be reminded, as Rocky Mountain Calvary, as this church family, as we step out into the things that God's called us to, we need his power. And sometimes that means for us to stop and wait and pray. Now, how many of you guys enjoy waiting? I don't like waiting. When I'm at the grocery store, there is the fastest line. Doesn't matter if there's two or three over here and one over here, I've gotta get to the fastest line. And if I get over here, inevitably, because there's only one person, then they have some kind of technical difficulty with the checker. So I'll I'll race back over to the other line with two or three, and before you know it, I've, I've wasted time. Especially if you've got marching orders, especially if you've got a job to do. It seems like cultures have their strengths and their weaknesses. One of the things that's a strength of our culture is we're doers, we're workers, we get things done, we produce, but we're not always great at relationships. We're not always great with knowing how to wait. And other cultures, you'll go and you'll spend time there and they're great at relationship, they're great at a slower pace of life, but from an outside perspective, we're like, do you guys get anything done here? I can't imagine that things move this slow. So this is especially difficult for Americans to stop and wait, to seek the Lord in prayer, to tarry for his presence, to tarry for his power, the promise of the Father. Verse five, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. John the Baptist, his baptism was of water. It was a baptism of repentance, people turning away from their sin, turning to Jesus Christ. It's a different type of baptism, but still a baptism of water for those that will be baptized this weekend. It's a baptism of saying, I'm in Christ. Through faith, I've identified with Christ, I'm buried with Christ, and I'm risen in newness of life. But baptism is used of several things throughout the scripture. And here, it's speaking of baptism of the spirit. In Mark 1 verse 8 says, I indeed baptize you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John the Baptist knew his baptism was one of repentance, but Jesus would immerse us, would bring us into the Holy Spirit. That's what the word baptism means. It means to immerse. So when we speak of tonight, to surrender in worship, lift my hands because it represents a heart that's surrendered to God. 
as we surrender to the Lord, then he's able to baptize us in the Holy Spirit. He's able to immerse us into the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel has an interesting experience with God. There's living water, there's moving water, and God speaks to Ezekiel and says, I want you to get in. and Get into your ankles. And Ezekiel says, okay, here I am, I'm into my ankles. God says, all right, up to your knees, up to your waist, to the point where Ezekiel is all the way in. And if you've been in moving water, a fast current, and you get out past where you can touch, you're gonna go where the current's gonna take you. And that was a picture of a life in the spirit. The spirit's also referred to as living water. We let go, we surrender, then we're able to be immersed into the Holy Spirit. And no longer is it where I want to take my life, where I want to take my day, where I want to take the afternoon, but where God wants to lead and guide. This is where the wrestling is for us. It's hard for us to surrender. It's hard for me to let go. There's some days that I surrender. There's some days that I don't. There's some days where I'm like, I'm going to hold tight to my selfishness, my wants, and my desires. Now, depending upon your background, right now you may be very uncomfortable from this word baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because some of you are coming from a background that maybe says, well, the book of Acts, that was a specific period in time, but God doesn't work that way any longer. And so your tendency is to then just tune out any personal application for your own life. You appreciate it, you're thankful that God did that, but you don't believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for today. Probably because largely to do with abuses. There's been many abuses of the Holy Spirit, abuses of the gifts of the Spirit, where we don't see it operating at all inside of Scripture. So our tendency then is to throw the baby out with the bathwater. This makes me uncomfortable. I don't understand this. Here's these people that are speaking in tongues and there's no interpretation and the Bible says that there needs to be interpretation if it's around believers. So I'm gonna just forget the things of the Spirit. Or I've heard of this where someone says they're baptized in the Spirit and they start laughing uncontrollably or they start barking. Now, does that sound to you like the person of the Holy Spirit? That sounds like my Newfoundland at home. It doesn't sound like the person of the Holy Spirit, right? We should be able to look at abuses and go, well, that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives control. The Holy Spirit gives love. Let me suggest this to you. There shouldn't be anything about the Holy Spirit that we fear, because the Holy Spirit's the third member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. So the Holy Spirit lines up with the character and the nature of God. We also know the nature of our Father. Our Father's good. He's demonstrated that by giving us his Son. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who asks? The Holy Spirit's good. The Holy Spirit's not weird. The Holy Spirit's not gonna lead you in some direction that doesn't make sense. The Holy Spirit's gonna stretch us. The Holy Spirit's gonna be in that place where he wants control, but it's not going to be weirdness. I think that the next few verses really unlock to us what the gift and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is as we look at the different experiences or relationships that the disciples had with the Holy Spirit. So verse six, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? 
They thought that the baptism of the Holy Spirit meant that God was gonna restore Israel. They're Israelites. It was hard for them to think eternally and not just temporally. A lot of times we're the same way. It's hard for us to see the big picture of God. Verse seven, and he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Jesus has the most polite way of saying none of your business. This is the Father's business. He knows when he's gonna restore all things, but you're not gonna know. We're never gonna know the day or the hour that God's gonna restore all things. We'll know the seasons, but not the exact day or hour. So this is the verse that helps us understand the baptism of the Spirit, verse eight. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And you shall receive power. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is for the purpose of us having the power to live out the Christian life. The Greek word for power is dunamis, which we get the word dynamite. Do you feel like your Christian life is lacking a little bit of power? I sure feel that way a lot of times. I need the power of God to be able to live out what God is calling me to do. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Notice also what it says. It says, you shall be witnesses to me. The power is not for our own emotional experience. It's not to toot the horn, if you would, but the power is to move the train. The power of the Holy Spirit is so that we shall be witnesses. Now, there's nothing wrong with going witnessing as the Lord leads you and guides you and directs you, and we need to be filled with the Spirit as we do that. But this is speaking of that you shall be a witness, that everything in our lives 24-7 is a witness of Jesus Christ, that people could see the way we treat our families, treat our friends, treat our roommates, treat a lost and dying world, and they go, wow, there's something different about you. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. That can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit and this third relationship. You may want to circle it or underline it, shall come upon you. Going back to our study in John, John 14, verse 7, was the first relationship that the disciples had with the Holy Spirit. For he dwells with you and will be in you. The disciples, before Christ rose from the dead, the Spirit of God could not be inside of them because their sins hadn't been paid for. So the Spirit was with them, but the Spirit shall be in them. Church, brother and sister in Christ, can you look back on your life before you knew Christ your Savior and go, the Spirit of God was with me, and I didn't even realize it. The Spirit of God was drawing me to Christ, was bringing me to a place of seeing my need for Christ. Isn't that amazing that God's love would be that great? That God's love would be with us in that lost state? But then you receive Christ as your Savior, and the Spirit came in you in that exact moment temple of the Holy Spirit, every single one of us. This is what happened to the disciples in John 20, verse 22. And please write these down. John 14, 17, John 20, verse 22. Jesus breathed on them. Hopefully he brushed his teeth that day. I'm sure he did. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is that moment that the Spirit of God came inside of them. This was after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now here, 
is the third relationship with the Spirit. So we have the proof of the Son, the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father is the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For some, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the moment that the Spirit came in them are one and the same. For others, there are two different experiences. There's a time where you got saved and the Spirit came in you, and then there was another time of being baptized in the Spirit. But hear this, the empowering of the Holy Spirit is not just a one-time experience. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it literally means continue being filled with the Spirit of God. Because as we go through this life, it's not just a one-time experience with the Spirit, but every single day, we need to be filled with the Spirit of God. We need the power of the Spirit in our lives. I want to share just a little bit of how this worked in my life. I think everyone probably has a different story of the experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. Is growing up in a wonderful church that taught much like we do, going verse by verse. God won my heart through the teaching of grace, seeing his character of grace. My freshman year of high school, I really gave my heart and life to Christ. And pretty quickly, I just began to soak up the scriptures. God gave me a love for the scriptures. Our church was also in the book of Acts and teaching about the filling of the Holy Spirit. And our pastor encouraged, have you been filled with the Spirit? Have you had the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And if you'd like to be prayed over, come and allow the leadership to pray over you and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The great thing about being new in the Lord, you're like, I want everything that God has for me. So after that service, I came up and the guys prayed for me, a couple of the leaders in our church, and guess what? Absolutely nothing happened. There was no emotional experience. I, I didn't speak in tongues. There wasn't like this immediate transformation that happened in my life. And our pastor had encouraged us, this is something that you pray for in faith and you receive in faith. And sometimes the Lord does give different experiences to different people, different gifts to different people. But remember, you want to be a witness of Jesus Christ. You desire love in your life. That's the ultimate evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. So receive it by faith. And it was probably six weeks later or so, I was studying the book of Acts on my own, and I was reading a commentary on Acts 1 and 2, and it just encouraged to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit, to get on your knees and wait upon the Lord till he felt like the Lord had answered. So again, simple-minded, new in the Lord, in my parents' basement, I was like, God, I'm going to wait. I'm not going to go to bed until I feel that you've met me. And the Lord in that night, he met me in the basement. He allowed me to speak in tongues, which I know is kind of strange and foreign. We don't talk about a lot. We're going to talk about it a lot more in, in next week's study. I didn't have to worry about interpretation because I was all by myself. And it was fairly short, but I knew that the Lord had met me. But I got to tell you now, that was some 20 years ago. And I need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit this evening. And I confess this to you that my tendency seems to be that God brings me to a great awareness of the need of his power in my life. And I really focus on, Lord, I want to walk in your spirit today. I want to be empowered by your spirit. I want to know what your spirit has today. And then I tend to get away from it. And I don't know why, but I just tend to kind of drift. 
And it's not that I'm drifting away from the Lord or I'm not spending time with the Lord, but I just seem to lose that awareness of I need your power and kind of drift more back to doing things in my own strength. And it's not like I would sit down at the beginning of the day and say, well, this is a Eric dude in your own strength day. I just kind of get to a place where then I wear myself out again and I realize I can't be the follower of Christ that God wants me to be without his power. And I come back to that place and I say, Lord, would you fill me with your spirit? And would you allow me to experience your power in my life? I want to be very clear on this because I think there's a lot of confusion is the baptism of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that you're going to speak in tongues. For some it does, but for some it doesn't. Billy Graham writes that he never spoke in tongues and you can't argue that he wasn't baptized with the Spirit. Come on, give me a break, right? He's obviously baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know what the evidence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is? It's love. That's what the scripture's teaching here. It's being a witness of Jesus Christ. So don't let anybody deceive you and say, well, if you were baptized with the Spirit, you'd speak in tongues. There's even some churches that teach if you don't speak in tongues, you're not saved. And that's not biblical. As we read 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 and Romans 12, tongues is a gift, just like the gift of teaching or the gift of administration. And not everybody's a teacher. Not everybody's an administrator. So God gives those gifts for his purposes. So how do you be baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit? This shouldn't be a mystical question, right? This shouldn't be something that's beyond our understanding. As we see from Christ's teaching, it's something that we should ask for in faith and wait upon. So tonight we can gather together and say, Lord, I desire to be filled with your Spirit. I desire all of the power that you would like to give me for your glory, and I'm going to wait upon that power. Also, as we'll continue in the book of Acts, it is something biblical to ask for people to pray for you in this, to go to church leaders and say, would you pray for me for the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Even by us asking shows humility, doesn't it? It shows I can't do this on my own. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. Also, another element is I think we have to let go of some things if we want to be filled with the Spirit. I can't go to God and say, God, I want to be filled with your Spirit, but I'm going to hold on to my anger too. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but I sure like my covetousness, and I'm going to hang on to my covetousness. We've got to allow God to cleanse us. We've got to let go of some things. We've got to surrender. I can't be filled with the Holy Spirit if I'm holding on to the steering wheel of my life saying, I'm going to go where I want to go. That's not going to lend itself to being filled with the Spirit. It's not so much that I need more of the Spirit, but the Spirit needs more of me. Does that make sense? To really surrender and get to that place of brokenness. Amber, my wife, she does a great job cooking for us as a family. And she cooks healthy stuff for us, and she goes to great lengths to find healthy food for us. Now, if I'm in a junk food mode, which sometimes I am, and if you haven't yet figured it out, the cafe sells some very good chips. And sometimes my office, it's fairly close to the cafe, the proximity there, and I'll just go buy myself a bag of chips or two bags. They're pretty small, especially for a, a man of my stature, you know. <laughs> so my love of chips is my downfall. Maybe I have a, a junky hamburger for lunch. I'm going to come home 
And I'm not going to really be hungry for the good stuff that Amber has prepared for us as a family. Now, I... Don't get me wrong, I do my part even under that case and I eat the the good stuff as well. But my appetite's not there. I'm not hungering for it. I'm not desiring for it. And we can come tonight and say, God, I want to be filled with your spirit. But if we don't get rid of the junk, if we're not ready to say, Lord, also take that junk from me, then we won't receive that power from the spirit as well. Let's look at verse 9. Now when he'd spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. We get so used to reading this sometimes that it loses its impact. Think what it would be like for these guys. Jesus is talking and then he's just floating up. They're on the Mount of Olives and he ascends to the Father. We should never leave out the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension of Jesus Christ is he was back to receiving his glory with the Father. He's exalted above every name. Every tongue is gonna confess, every knee is gonna bow at Christ and his power. The ascension of Christ has great impact upon us as believers. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. As he is risen, so we will be risen as well. John 16 verse 7 tells us that as he went and ascended to the Father, he could give us the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 verse 8 tells us that as he ascended, he gave gifts to men. This is when he gave the spiritual gifts, is when he ascended to the Father. This is my personal favorite. I hope you're encouraged with this tonight. Romans 8 34 says, who is he who condemns? It is it Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. First, he's not stressed out. He's not impatient. He's not pulling his hair out. He's seated. It's a position of rest. The work is finished. But we're on his heart. His bride is upon his heart. You are prayed for by Jesus today. He's interceding on your behalf. Verse 10, we're gonna end with verse 11 tonight. Don't get nervous. We're not gonna do the whole, whole chapter. I see you guys looking at your watch and looking at the chapter looking at your watch and looking at your chapter. Verse 10. And while they looked steadfast toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Angels have to come and tell the disciples, get to work. You've got a job to do. Just as Jesus ascended, he's going to descend. He ascended up from the Mount of Olives. The book of Zechariah tells us he'll descend back onto the Mount of Olives. An elementary age boy was reading a fiction book that he was just enthralled with. It was one of those first books that really got his attention. And what a joy that is as a life of a parent to watch that happen in your kid's life. But mom needed him to help out with getting dinner ready. She said, son, I need you to put your book down and come help me in in the kitchen. He said, just a second, mom, because he wanted to know if the villain was going to get busted. So what did he do? It's what all boys do. You go to the last chapter and you look and you read and you find out, oh, phew, the villain gets busted at the end of the book. Closes the book, comes in. Mom's a little bit surprised. She says, hey, I'm impressed. Why, why did you come in so, so quickly? Well, I know how the book ends. 
the bad guy, he loses. Guess what, church? Go to the book of Revelations. We know the last chapter. The bad guy loses. Jesus Christ rules and reigns over all things. So we get to live our lives from that place of victory. Knowing that Christ is already victorious, then we have a job to do. The only thing that's left is the hearts of people. How many people are going to get to go to heaven with us? A few application questions, and the first is this. Am I convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Have I experienced those infallible proofs where I can share with someone else with confidence that Christ is risen from the dead? And then finally, am I walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? And am I walking in the power of the Holy Spirit? For some reason, the baptism of the Holy Spirit has been one of the more difficult for me. And it's not because I don't believe it up here. It's not because I don't believe it intellectually. But it is difficult because it is one of those things that doesn't fit into a mathematical formula. And I'm kind of a square of a personality, if you cannot tell. I get up at the same time of day. I kind of go to bed at the same time of day. I drink the same amount of coffee pretty much every day at the same time every day. Simple. I just routine. I feel comfortable in routine. Things that I can understand. And when it comes to the spirit, it's trust. And it's realizing that the spirit's good. Even if I can't put it into a mathematical formula. But I also really appreciate that everything's not in a mathematical formula. Because I go, wow, this is really a, a fresher breath air that people actually can paint and they can draw and they can do graphics and they can act and do music and do all this. I appreciate these non-square items in life. And see, the Holy Spirit's not going to just be put into a, a box for us. But we know the character of God and we know Scripture. We know that the Holy Spirit's not going to do anything outside of the bounds of Scripture. But this is what I suggest to all of us tonight is one, if you've never prayed for or experienced that third relationship with the Holy Spirit, what are you holding back for? We see it in scripture. God hasn't changed. Pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. As we go into this time of worship and communion, come and ask somebody on the ministry team and say, would you pray with me and would you pray for me that I would receive the power of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And it may be like my experience where Nothing happens, or it may be that the Lord does move in some kind of experience, but the important thing is that faith of asking the Lord. Maybe you say, you know what, Eric, I can remember a time in my life where I did experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but like you, I've kind of put it back on my own strength, and I'm tired of doing it. It's a burden that I cannot bear. I need the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's this issue that God's putting his heart on saying, I want to lead you, I want to fill you, but you've got to let go of this, let it go, and allow the Holy Spirit to fill us. And here's the hard part, but it's also refreshing, is make this part of daily prayer life. So wake up, say, Lord, I give myself to you, I surrender to you, would you give me the power of the Holy Spirit, because I can't do this without you. If we don't understand this, we don't get the rest of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is not a bunch of talented people with good ideas. It's the power of the Holy Spirit and them being obedient to the power of the Holy Spirit. And true change in our lives is going to happen and true change in our community and throughout this world, not as we follow the good idea fairy, not as we come up with what our good ideas are, but as we follow the Holy Spirit.
Let's stand and pray together.